While 2020 has largely been a shambles, I can celebrate at least two personal accomplishments. First is the podcast. It was in this calendar year that the thing has gone from an idea to a sustained reality, and I have been able to do a lot of thinking and writing on the subject that is so dear to me, the discovery of consciousness in the universe. The second is my jogging routine, which began at the very start of the year and has continued unabated to my great satisfaction. I've never been particularly athletic or healthy, but I have been known to take up jogging for periods of weeks or months in the past and found that it is possible to show improvement over time. At the beginning of this year, I decided to prove to myself that I can develop the discipline to do something hard, running five miles every day of my own free will. I bring this up for a reason, not just to impress you with my discipline, which, believe me, isn't nearly what it could be. I bring it up to discuss an observation I have made about the experience of running long distances over time. This observation is related to the perception of time that I talked about in episode 31. I have noticed that the perception of suffering loses its density when I continue to do the same difficult thing repeatedly. When you have not exercised in a long time and you go out to jog a mile, if you're like me, you will suffer immensely, a kind of aching, desperate exhaustion and frustration that pits your willpower against a real challenge. You might tell yourself with reasonable evidence that running is not for you that it is too hard, you aren't the running type, and there must be some other way to get healthy. Or better yet, convince yourself that improving your health isn't that important anyway. I suggest that the way to proceed is to push directly through. Go out and run another mile the next day and the next. Before long, it isn't nearly as painful an experience as it was at first. I observe that the ordeal of running five or six miles per day after a while is not nearly what occurred with the one mile run on the first day. It's not even close. In a real way, the accomplishment on those first few days is more impressive than the six miles achieved someday months later. Is it possible that in just a month or two, the runner is that much more fit than before? I have run 10 miles on occasions, and that is not easy for me to do, but it's, not, it's still not as brutal as that first day's mile. I think that a kind of habituation must be taking place. I don't mean to say that you get used to the pain and gain a tolerance, that you learn to man up and deal with it. No, I mean to say that the experience you are having contains less phenomenological suffering. We all notice from time to time when a background noise that we have been unaware of suddenly goes away. Perhaps an air conditioner fan turns off. All of a sudden, it is quieter than before. But before, we didn't know there was any sound going on in the background from which to get quieter. Conceivably, a minute later, some further background noise could drop away, and we could experience even quieter. What is the objective level of ambient noise, anyway? We could measure it in decibels if we had the right instrument. Since sound waves are pressure events in a medium, there must be a zero level of sound, perhaps only truly captured in a vacuum. The brain exhibits habituation by cellular mechanisms. A good source for getting some understanding of this is Eric Kandel, the Nobel Prize-winning memory researcher. He wrote in a chapter from Principles of Neuroscience, quote, In habituation, the simplest form of implicit learning, an animal learns about the properties of a novel stimulus that is harmless. An animal first responds to a new stimulus by attending to it with a series of orienting responses. If the stimulus is neither beneficial nor harmful, the animal learns after repeated exposure to ignore it. Habituation was first investigated by Ivan Pavlov and Charles Sherrington. While studying posture and locomotion, Sherrington observed a decrease in the intensity of certain reflexes such as the withdrawal of a limb in response to repeated stimulation." Unquote. 
The term habituation here is analogous to the perceptual effects we are interested in and may share mechanistic commonality. In other contexts, the idea is referred to as adaptation. Kandel's work on habituation using the sea slug aplesia helped to clarify these mechanisms in a system which in all probability has no conscious perception at all. Incidentally, aplesia is not the given name of an individual slug, though it kind of sounds like it could be, but rather the genus of marine slugs Kandel studied. The central nervous system of the aplesia has only 20,000 neurons. Its use in learning experiments was ideal because it withdraws its gill and siphon in response to novel stimuli. Kendall writes, quote, Gill withdrawal in aplesia has been studied in detail. In response to a novel tactile stimulus to the siphon, firing in the sensory neurons innervating the siphon generates excitatory synaptic potentials in interneurons and motor cells. The synaptic potentials from the sensory neurons and interneurons summate, both temporally and spatially, to cause the motor cells to discharge repeatedly, leading to strong reflexive withdrawal of the gill. If the stimulus is repeated, the direct monosynaptic excitatory synaptic potentials produced by sensory neurons in both the interneurons and the motor cells become progressively smaller. Thus, with repeated stimulation, several of the excitatory interneurons also produce weaker synaptic potentials in the motor neurons, with the net result that motor neurons fires much less briskly and consequently the reflex response diminishes." Unquote. Kandel goes on to describe the mechanism. The excitatory synapses become reduced in effectiveness because of a diminishment in the number of synaptic vesicles. Synapses between neurons involve the release of neurotransmitter, which stimulates several classes of receptors on the postsynaptic neuron. Release of the neurotransmitter, in this case, like most of the human central nervous system, glutamate, occurs when vesicles which contain the neurotransmitter fuse with the cell membrane and spill it into the synapse. So a reduction in neurotransmitter vesicles at the presynaptic side means a reduction in neurotransmitter released following an action potential. This means that the second neuron is far less influenced toward firing action potential of its own. The amount of excitation is reduced. This type of synaptic plasticity is a simple kind of learning. The aplesia gill withdrawal reflex is a radically simplified analogy to the perceptual habituation that is our topic. Patricia Churchland sums this up in Neurophilosophy. Quote, the fundamental principle is deadly simple, but at the same time almost endlessly versatile. Increased complexity will essentially be a matter of adding components of the same basic type. The neurons in a flatworm and the neurons in a human brain work on the same fundamental principles from which it does not follow, however, that the capacities of the human brain are essentially just those of a densely packed conglomeration of flatworm ganglia. The marvelous thing about electrical circuits is that adding components is not merely a matter of enlarging the system, but sometimes means changing the system's capacities in novel and remarkable ways. In particular, the evolutionary step that interposes neurons between sensory neurons and motor neurons is revolutionary. It permits the building in of a basic world representation, and it can provide for increasingly fancy updating of the world representation through learning. As the interneuron pool proliferates under evolutionary pressure for more competitive sensory motor coordination, the innate world representation improves, and the dimensions of plasticity ramify." Unquote. Churchland points out that in a much more complicated system, there is room for all kinds of synaptic plasticity, both of a diminishing kind, like in habituation, and of an increasing kind, like in sensitization. I already mentioned hearing, the manner in which a continuous or repeated sound disappears from consciousness. But consider some of the other senses. What does your saliva taste like? 
What do you smell like? These cases are essentially impossible to answer because we have completely habituated. Think about the annoying novelty of having a tooth pulled or chipped or some other change inside of your mouth. Your tongue explores the new space continually. It can be really distracting. But after a bit of time, maybe a couple of days, the new mouth is fully explored and everything feels back to normal. This is so even though you still have the new mouth. So what does the inside of your mouth feel like? You really can't say. It feels baseline. It feels normal. The arrangement is habituated. Habituation to the arrangement of the body, its tastes and smells and shapes and feels, must have occurred to us as growing babies. After that, the maturation and growth occurred so slowly that we never really noticed. Except, of course, during puberty when radical changes begin to occur more suddenly. All of this familiarity leads essentially to the loss of conscious sensation. Instead of feeling our bodies in their normal state, we really only feel them when something new is occurring. A ward or a tick is discovered. An ache is felt in the arch of the foot. Some itch or other discomfort arises. A lump is found on the old testicles. Other than that, we have a kind of background nothingness corresponding to perceptual maps that are nevertheless receiving stimulus. The stimulus is so constant that we cannot perceive it. Human vision is much more complex than hearing, and we have the cerebral cortex to show for it, with a large amount of real estate taken up with visual processing. Vision has a number of different dimensions to it. Position in three-dimensional space, obviously, but also contours, colors, shapes, and borders, vertical versus horizontal orientation, and motion. C.L. Hardin explores color perception in depth in his book Color for Philosophers. Of particular relevance to our topic, Hardin writes, quote, Fortunately for those who make their living with color, the eye is for the most part forgiving of changes in color balance with changes in illumination. This is in large measure due to the fact that our eyes adapt to changes in the chromaticity of the illumination much as they adapt to changes in intensity. Amateur photographers who use outdoor color film for artificially lit subjects discover to their sorrow that their pictures are yellowish, just as those who use tungsten film for outdoor scenes discover that everything has a bluish tinge. Although we are, if we think about it, aware that incandescent light imparts a warm, yellowish cast to things, the magnitude of the differences revealed by the camera startles us. We are once again reminded of the gulf that separates eye and camera. But the eye looks at the picture. So why does it not adapt and help us out with the picture? The answer, that it is the general illumination of the space in which we see the picture which largely determines the adaptation of the eye. And indeed, if the picture can be made into a slide and so in its mode of projection made to play a larger role in determining the general illumination of the environment, a larger portion of, th of the yellowness will adapt out." Unquote. Hardin goes on to explain that there are multiple mechanisms for the adaptation that occurs in color perception. A major one is the shift that occurs in the relative sensitivity of different types of cones with repeated stimulation. This is reminiscent of habituation in the aplysia gill withdrawal reflex. Hardin further describes evidence that at least part of the adaptation occurs in the visual cortex. The adaptation that occurs in sensory systems is interesting in that it demonstrates that we cannot trust our senses. We are not seeing and hearing what is actually presented to us by the world, but rather enjoying perceptions that have been cultivated for our benefit by natural selection. But this is not the key point for today's discussion. For this discussion, the focus is on habituation as a means of dropping things out of our experience altogether, contents which disappear from consciousness into the background noise. The idea is important to the temporally integrated causality landscape, TICL. I observed that consciousness is a limited composition of contents, a phenomenological fact requiring an explanation. 
It seemed apparent to me that some kind of threshold must exist for determining whether a conscious content will occur or not, given the absolute barrage of incoming sensory data. According to the TICL, conscious contents occur according to the dynamic activities of a set of integrated neuronal elements, what I call a subsystem. The particular experience, the qualia, which emerge from that subsystem, depend upon the arrangement of the elements. A much larger set of integrated elements makes up the system, and the subsystems occur within the more massive system. From the point of view of the system, the subsystemic activities have meaning. They are experienced. In an early episode on the threshold of consciousness, I described how it is determined whether a set of elements is a subsystem. This is where temporally integrated causality comes in. The whole system of neuronal elements has some non-zero level of temporally integrated causality over some period of time. A subsystem is any set of elements over which the level of temporally integrated causality is even higher. My rationale is that groups of elements that have the same or less temporally integrated causality as the rest of the system will be qualitatively indistinguishable, will have no meaning, no qualia. What would pure experience be like if we did not have mechanisms of habituation, like the reduced synaptic activity that occurred in aplesia with repeated stimuli? Maybe this is what it was like when we first became sentient as babies, a blur of stimuli, colors, rushing sounds and skin sensations, our tongue busy discovering its domain for the first time. We would have had no a priori knowledge of where to focus our eyes, where to point them, or where in time the distinction is made between one sound and another. In any case, the experience we would have is nothing at all like the one we are having now. And I contend that the key difference is all of the things we are not experiencing now. It's interesting to contemplate that we might have no feel at all for where we are and what it is like, since everything persistent is habituated into the background. We only experience the novel and the changing. Another interesting thought occurs to me. Might the contents of our cognition, our very thoughts, be subject to the mechanisms of habituation? I can attest that I find it very difficult to understand how I think, to know what beliefs and presuppositions underwrite my perspectives, just as I don't know what my saliva tastes like or what it feels like to have hands instead of wings. I do not know what it is like to have my personality, my mannerisms, my turns of thought. Each of these is too close, too familiar to be known to me. I am reminded here of Sigmund Freud's ideas on repression and the unconscious. An example from a general introduction to psychoanalysis is, quote, I have ascribed to you a wish that I had begun the subject of the neuroses with a description of the neurotic's behavior and of the ways in which he suffers from his disorder, protects himself against it, and adapts himself to it. This is certainly a very interesting subject, well worth studying, and not difficult to treat. Nevertheless, there are reasons against beginning with this aspect. The danger is that the unconscious will be overlooked the great importance of the libido ignored, and that everything will be judged as it appears to the patient's own ego. Now, it is obvious that his ego is not a reliable and impartial authority. The ego is, after all, the force which denies the existence of the unconscious and has subjected it to repressions. How, then, can we trust its good faith where the unconscious is concerned? Unquote. This is a good point, isn't it? We often do not even begin to know what motivates our desires and preferences. First published in 1924, Freud's general introduction would have included no knowledge at all about synaptic plasticity or synapses at all for that matter. But he might, after all, have been onto something. One conception of hell is to be forever trapped in an elevator with one piece of popular music playing continuously. 
It's fun to imagine which song would be the worst choice. Clearly, any choice would be a form of torture in no time. Perhaps the most sinister moment of all would be the little gap between the end of one playthrough and the beginning of the next. The one tiny second of anticipation punctuated inevitably by the tedious and most hated introduction. But I wonder if this conception of hell would fail to work. Could something so complicated as a three-minute song, once heard beat by beat by ear-splitting beat over and over again, be utterly erased from experience by habituation? If each horrible note could be so thoroughly predicted in the central nervous system, might the synapses in time, in their mercy, atrophy to nothing and spare an old sinner from his punishment? God, I hope so. Mm -hmm.